Hello and welcome to the MSUCOM Statewide Campus System MedEd Transformation Podcast. I am Deb Young, Director of Faculty Development, and I am joined today by my friend and colleague, Dr. Sandy Muchis from Vanderbilt University. Sandy, thanks so much for being here with me today. Thanks for inviting me, Deb. So I have known Sandy, I don't know, I'm going to say probably close, almost three years now, I think it's going to be. Yep. And uh, I met her at the ACGME in Chicago. Um, we are both hub leaders for a program called Building Faculty Competency in Assessment. However, you are one of the founders of the hubs. And so can you tell everyone first, about the course that we're talking about, and then maybe about the work um, that the hubs are doing. Sure. Um, so the course in Chicago at ACGME um, is called Developing Faculty Competencies and Assessment. Um, and as a program director, I'm the MedPeds program director at Vanderbilt. I found that I wanted to develop some of my own skills to figure out how to most effectively assess residents and how most effectively to give them feedback and coach them on their skills. And so I attended this course as a participant in 2014 and it was amazing. I, it is not really too much to say that it was transformative for me both personally and professionally. And at the end of that was a six day course I went up to the course director, Eric Holmbo, who really has run this course for 20 years at different locations and said to him, Eric, this content is amazing. And I think every single program director needs to have access to these skills and these tools. There's so many thousands of programs around the country. How do you envision scaling this? We had, I don't know, 40, 45 people in Chicago that week. And he said to me, funny you should ask me that, the ACGME board has really been thinking about how would we create um, a regional sort of hub program where we would have different sites at different institutions around the country. And he said, do you think Vanderbilt might be interested in being our first pilot? And I being the exuberant human that I am said, sure, we'll do it. And uh, sure if we did. So we took um, Eric's course uh, of six days, and really pared it down to the essentials for program directors and core faculty to three days. And in September of 2015, ran the first pilot regional hub course at Vanderbilt. Um, and then the rest of the, as they say is history. And I've met Deb sort of in my journey along that way. And then, so now there's like 17 hubs worldwide. Yeah, that's right. So we started the pilot at Vanderbilt and then slowly other folks started to say, this is amazing content. We want to do this too. And I believe the second was out at UCLA and the third was out at Cleveland Clinic. Um, and it's just grown. And we have um, four, I believe, international sites uh, also. And it's really been a, just a joy and a privilege, a professional privilege of mine to be able to participate in the starting um, of many of these hubs across the country and the world. Yeah, it, it's, it's been great work and I've, it's been a pleasure and an honor to be part of the, the hub programs with MSUCOM. And so digging into this, you know, we're, we're trained in our field of specialty, but we're not trained as teachers. Right. Um, and medicine still 
people look at it as, as a more apprenticeship because they're still going through residencies and they're learning how to be a physician from someone else to learn how to be a physician from someone else, from someone else, from someone else. Right. Um, the ACGME and all the specialties, med peds, family med, so on and so forth, they created these things called milestones. How does that fit into what we're trying to do with consistency uh, in teaching? Well, I think you're exactly right, Deb, that this has always been an apprenticeship model and we have learned from the people that go before us. But one of the things that I think is hard for an expert is they are in fact expert at what they do and being able to break that down into the component parts and talk about how you do those parts is really essential. And the milestones are really just that. They're broken down into the core elements of what skills one might expect or one would expect for a person in that discipline. So internal medicine is one of my parent programs. And so the question for the milestone creators was really what does a great internist look like? And what skills should a great internist have? And as um, I think most people know, the ACGME has six core competencies in uh, patient care, medical knowledge, systems-based practice, practice-based learning and improvement, professionalism, and interpersonal and communication skills. And within those six buckets, each specialty broke those down to describe within their specialty what specific skills their trainees would need. So it's a way for us to be all on the same page and have what we say again and again in this course, Deb, which you know well, is the shared mental model or a similar expectation of what great looks like. And then that helps us coach people to get there. So really, regardless of where they're completing their residency, they're fulfilling the same requirements. The same basic requirements, yes. Okay. Now, the, and again, because I know the details of the course in which we, we teach, um, there's gonna be differences in our learners, but there's also those differences in our faculty. And you already pointed that out and that's that shared mental model of teaching. But before we get to the essence of the course, you know, how, what do you see in faculty that are, that are teaching and evaluating students? Like wh where's the, the differences? If they're watching the same learner perform, the evaluations are different. Why is that? Um, well, I think we're all individual humans. <laughs> and I think going back to that apprenticeship model, we know what we do. Um, and I think it, it's hard because when we often are told to evaluate something, we're not told what exactly to evaluate. So Deb, for instance, if you and I are watching the same performance, let's say in um, a communication skill in the simulation lab, um, I may be focused on organization. I may be focused on a specific way in which or order in which someone asks the questions. And you may be focused on um, empathetic language and um, um, shared decision-making and a collaborative language. And so if we're looking for different things, it's quite obvious that we're then gonna report different things. Um, so that defining what we're looking for and having different evaluators looking for the same things is really important. Okay, so we, we get the faculty to be looking for the same thing, but what if our scores are still different? 
Um, part of the course, like you know, is really exploring a whole lot of reasons um, for people to see different things and come up with different scores. Um, and one of the main things uh, that causes folks to have different scores is that we use a different comparator. We, we call this a frame of reference, but we're comparing this resident's performance to something, and that something often changes. So sometimes we compare an intern to what we think interns should know. But the error in that can be that what you expect an intern to know, what I expect an intern to know, may be two different things. We might compare to um, what I do. So this is the way that I do my knee exam. And if you do it as well as I do, you're doing really well. If you don't do it as well as I do, well, maybe you're not doing as well. And clearly, if you do it better than I do, then you are superior. Um, and I think, you know, there are some things that I do really well. Um, and there are some things that maybe I don't do as well as I should. And, and I think that's um, that's reality. And I think that's a, a little bit hard for us sometimes as a teacher to recognize that um, if I'm using myself as the benchmark, um, that, that that's gonna be highly variable between observers. And so one of the things we like to teach in the course is Again, if we can have a shared mental model of what great looks like, that's the best thing to compare someone against. If you have an evidence-based framework, which we have for many communication skills, such as shared decision-making, um, such as collecting an informed consent, um, such as breaking bad news, um, there are many skills for which we have evidence that when we perform those communication skills that way, it improves patient outcomes. It improves the patient's understanding. And so when we have an evidence-based guideline, we should use that. Um, and, you know, of course, I, I think people listening are gonna say, well, that's great if we have an evidence-based framework, but how many things do we do where we're not 100% sure what the, the best way to do something is? Um, and we have a, um, a way in which we teach getting a group of smart people together to talk about what the elements of that performance would be. How would we see someone do that skill excellently? And how would we describe those behaviors? I, I love that you brought that up because when you talked about using self as the ideal and, and the comparative, it just doesn't seem um, very evidence-based or ideal because my strengths and your strengths are going to be different. Sure. Um, and then that talking about, you know, getting them to getting your faculty together and deciding for those other skills that we perform beyond communication, um, come up with, with what the ideal is for, for your program. And so that's probably where we're still going to see some differences across programs across the nation. Yeah. Now, you've been doing this course since 2015. Uh-huh. How difficult was it um, for your faculty to change their approach to using this evidence-based performance dimension type uh, training model? Um, you know, I, I think that um, anytime you institute change and institute change with a, a huge number of people, it is slow. <laughs> Um, I think that one of the things that we've done is really frame this for faculty as an opportunity to be a better coach. 
I think there's no one out there who participates in medical education who doesn't want to be the most effective they can be. And when we talk about giving feedback and having very specific observations um, with a standard in mind to be able to give people feedback so their skills get better, um, it's really a skill for faculty, Deb. You know, we, we talk about resident skills all the time, but, you know, direct observation and the ability to give effective feedback are really skills for faculty. And so many of our faculty are so busy being clinicians, just like you said in the very beginning, that some of these educator skills, a lot of people just haven't had time to practice. And so one of the great things about the course and about even like the lunchtime lectures that we do for our faculty here locally, is it really helps faculty see education as a skill, to see direct observation as feedback and a skill. And all of a sudden that change goes from being something imposed by somebody else to actually being an opportunity for learning for our faculty. Um, and, and they don't have to be, it doesn't have to be a three-day course or a six-day course. You know, there's a lot that we can do in a small one-hour lunchtime workshop. Um, and I think that has a lot of value. So I think I think framing it as a skill, which it is, um, for faculty and and letting people use this as their own opportunity for growth. Good good point. I mean, I know I hear from many faculty that oh, faculty development, all day events, uh, longitudinal events. <clears throat> we forget about the things that we can do in that shorter amount of time. I mean, we have faculty development in three minutes, which gives you kind of a quick theory and then an activity for you to do um, with yourself or, or with a, a group of your colleagues. And so um, I like that you pointed out that you even take some of these components from that three-day course and, you know, put it into monthly, uh, your monthly meetings or things like that. Because um, one, one thing I really I hone in on with the participants that have gone through the MSU Com three-day course is that this isn't come for three days and you know all and you can do all and you can be all. You now have to take this and, and use it and practice it and teach it um, to your other faculty, as well as telling the residents, your learners, what you're doing. Uh, 100%. So there's two really big important points that you just made, Deb, and I would like to reiterate them. Um, and I think, you know, we have a, a mentor in common who talks about the bolus and the drip. And certainly the faculty development three-day course or six-day course is the bolus. It's very energizing. It's a lot of information. But if that's all we have, we don't have the maintenance portion. And the drip is really the one-hour lunchtime session, um, the, you know, uh, Saturday morning retreat, the uh, resident retreat, um, you know, those smaller segments where you're just reinforcing the things that you've done. Um, and I think your point about bringing the residents in is incredibly important. There's this concept of co-production where faculty and residents learn together that's incredibly powerful. Um, and I think bringing the residents in and finding a way to activate them in the same way that we just talked about the faculty, if you can help them frame this as an opportunity to be coached and learn, all of a sudden it's 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 something they want. All of a something it's something to be desired as opposed to one more checky box of something they have to check off. And just an example from what we've done with our residents. When I first, I, I've done this actually in the past six months, 
when we started with our residents and said, you know, we're going to be doing this coaching program and continuity clinic, there were a little bit of eye roll, I have to be honest. But then I started talking about coaches in other settings and coaches like for piano or coaches for baseball or basketball or your kid's soccer coach. Um, my children play chess, so even your chess coach. You know, those coaches, you envision them giving you really specific little nuggets of feedback that you can then improve your um, tennis swing or, you know, improve what you do with your knight on your opening <laughs> in your chess game. Um, and so, you know, what does that look like when we think about coaches and medical education? And it's the same really sort of thing, like taking a skill and bringing it down into those most elemental parts. And the residents still are a little bit um, hesitant when we talk about that. And then I say to them, think about your most challenging patient in continuity last week or the week before. You know, what was it that you really wanted to be able to do? Sandy? Your mic cut out. I'm not sure what that was, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> okay, I it, the uh, volume cut out, and then now you're back. <laughs> okay, I, I'm back. <laughs> okay, so, so, I, so where, where it cut out at was um, think of your most challenging patient in continuity clinic. Yeah, so think about that patient, and, and what often comes up for those residents thinking about that patient is motivational interviewing. Um, you know, I have a patient I've been trying to get to quit smoking. Um, and I'm really frustrated because I'm not sure how to help her. I feel like I'm not being effective. Um, or I have somebody we're really working on an exercise program, but I just don't feel like I've been effective. And I'll say to them, you know, tell me what you know about motivational interviewing. Um, what do you know about the steps for helping people with behavior change? And a lot of times they don't know. And we've put those frameworks in clinic. So I can say to them, you know what? There's a framework. And probably a lot of your faculty members weren't actually taught motivational interviewing either. So why don't you both pull up that motivational interviewing framework, talk through it and see what you and your preceptor think might be most helpful for you to approach your patient with, and then have them go do direct observation and watch you, see how it goes, and then come on out and have a conversation about it. And all of a sudden, if that's a patient they've struggled with and we have a solution, for how they might be able to do that skill better, all of a sudden we've become part of, part of their answer and part of their growth. Um, so I, I think if, if we can frame this as what it is, which is an opportunity for skill development and coaching, the residents all of a sudden get all in. And, and one, one strategy I did was I divided clinical skills in the outpatient setting into four buckets, communication and counseling skills, physical exam skills, clinical reasoning uh, and presentation, and then empiric management. And I wrote specific things that I've heard residents over the years struggle with. And all of a sudden the residents said, yeah, 50% of those things on the screen are things I would like help with. And I said, well, we have this coaching program. It's an opportunity. Um, you know, every one of your clinic faculty members are learning some skills to do direct observation and feedback better maybe you could actually ask them for feedback on a particular skill. And, and when we have 
motivation from both directions. And again, it's almost the shared mental model for education, right? You know, if we can get residents and faculty on the same page for how um, faculty can be better coaches, it, it works out well. And I, I will say my experiences in the real world, that's true. It, it very much is. But you, you said something that I think um, might surprise some faculty, maybe more like the UME faculty rather than the GME faculty, but sharing the mental model, sharing the evaluation tool. Um, you know, oftentimes we as assessors kind of hold that close to our, our chest, like, no, I'm not going to show you how I'm assessing. You just have to be able to do it and then I'll, I'll grade you. Right. Um, but that's very different than the coaching model, which I love that you framed it as coaching, that I'm here to coach you. I'm going to share with you exactly my expectations and how we're going to get there. Well, and honestly, Deb, it seems kind of silly to me that if there's a 15-step procedure that I'm expecting a resident to learn, why in the world wouldn't I show it to them? <laughs> because that's what I'm expecting them to learn. And so, you know, if we're just all on the same page, it's all about, it's base, it's the basics, right? It, good expectations um, lead to good learning. So if I have a written down framework that has some steps of what is the best way to do a procedure, whether that's putting in a central line or tapping some fluid off of a knee or agenda setting, which is a communication skill or motivational interviewing, which is another communication skills. And I think also framing communication as a skill for some of our faculty is kind of a new concept, but we actually can teach optimal communication in the same way that we can teach the optimal way to do a lumbar puncture. Right. But I, I think that that, that exact point goes to show that using the frame of reference of myself, I mean, I don't have a checklist for how well I do something and to be able to share, like, this is how I expect you to do it because this is how I do it. We're using evidence-based medicine. So now we have that checklist. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting when we do some of these courses, we've had some reflections from some of our surgical colleagues that there's some very idiosyncratic ways that their faculty do different procedures and and I think that's within someone's right to have their idiosyncratic way in which they do this. But if there actually is a best practice model and we have 10 faculty doing a procedure 10 different ways, and imagine the learner who is working with those 10 different faculty, we're asking the most junior person to try to figure out out of 10 options what the best way to do a procedure is. If it in fact there sense. is a best way, why don't we teach that? You know, I, I think when we when we sit back and think about it, it really seems simple. It's very hard in the real world to um, enact these things, but I think it's incredibly important. It's about patient care and patient safety in, in the end, right? Right, right, exactly. How did how did going to this model uh, change your assessments and evaluation tools? Um, you know, it's revolutionary for me, actually, Deb, because, you know, I used to go into the room and have really kind of a, like a lack of focus, to be honest. Like I was watching them. I wasn't really sure what I should be watching. Am I watching how they, um, how they sit down and interact with the patient? Am I listening to the words that they choose? Am I listening to their clinical reasoning? And I have to say, as, a, as an observer, it was really hard 
to try to take all that in and then to try to decide what out of all those observations I would say to the resident. So frankly, I find it easier and more effective to say to the resident before I walk in, what are you working on? And they'll say, um, you know, this person is really kind of difficult to direct. I'm working on trying to be efficient, but trying to keep on task. We'll talk about agenda setting. How do you do with agenda setting? How do you negotiate an agenda? Oh, I don't really do that. Okay, well, let's look at this framework. And then they go do that. And I watch them and I'm watching a very specific skill. Do they do other things really well? Yes. Do they do other things maybe that need improvement? Yes. Can I comment on them? If they're really important, I can. But when I focus on that agenda setting, they know that's what I'm going to observe. That's what they want some help with. So they have a perception that they need to do that better or could do that better. And then I can give them very focused feedback. So I have to say, as a faculty member, this approach makes me feel much more effective. It almost feels like many ILPs when you ask them. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that, you know, imagine somebody who's giving you feedback for something they think is really important that you actually don't think is either important or are not working on. It's, you know, when we talk about feedback, how a person receives feedback is actually much more important than how a person gives feedback. Um, And so as the feedback giver, I want to know what my receiver or what my learner is going to listen to. What are they interested in? Um, And so it really is a conversation and a dialogue, um, which as we have done the work with feedback have really actually found that to be most effective for learning. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I think if we use, so in the course, we teach the ADAPT model that if you attend the course, then you'll get to know the ADAPT model in more detail. Um, it's almost like that first ask needs to happen before the encounter. Yeah. I think I, I need- it, then it's focusing, right? If you know what you're going to look for and you know what they want to work on, it, it's, it's much more efficient and much more accurate for both of you. So... How has using the evidence-based criteria for resident assessments impacted the resident's development? Have you noticed a change in your residents from before you did this to now, anecdotally? Um, Yes. (laughs) Um, I find that, um, you know, all residents struggle with efficiency in continuity clinic and um, specifically in deliberately teaching agenda setting has really been, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's made efficiency for, for all of us. It's really just been lovely. Um, so that's one particular skill that since we've been delivered across the board, I think has really helped residents. I think also being specific about the skills, whether there is an evidence-based framework that we're working with, or whether it's just a particular skill that we're gonna go do together, being specific about what they wanna learn. You know, I think some residents see a continuity clinic or a day in clinic as work, as something they have to get through. And, And I do think pausing for a moment to reframe for both faculty and residents, this is an educational unit. This is, you know, any clinic that a resident is in is both for patient care and 
for their opportunity to learn. So what is it that they're going to be working on learning for this particular um, half day of clinic, let's say as an example? Have you tracked um, any change in the ACGME resident survey results as a result of having this course and all of your faculty have gone through this course? So, you know, a couple of comments there, and this is all anecdotal from me. Um, we, we are a really big program, so it's really hard to track um, what interventions impact uh, our feedback rating. Um, but I do have to say several years ago, uh, our feedback ratings were not great. <laughs> and I have seen probably four years of steady improvement on our ACGME survey. Um, whether that's related to this program or not, I have absolutely no idea. But I, I do know that um, anecdotally, the residents will tell me they get much more verbal feedback than they used to, particularly in continuity clinic. Okay. And so you are a really big program. And so roughly how many faculty do you have? Well, again, I live in two departments, so it depends on <laughs> what you're talking about. So I, I, I'm part of the combined program. So I myself have 24 residents, uh, but on the internal medicine side, we have over 150. And on the pediatric side, we're at about 75. And those are very rough numbers. Um, but we have over 600 faculty in the department of medicine. So, you know, it's, it's not... It's not as if we have every single person who um, is participating uh, in, in these skills, but we continue to roll it out in pockets. Um, so we've started with our continuity clinic preceptors in medicine and in medpeds, and we are starting with a couple of early adopters in our subspecialty clinics. And so, you know, one of the other things that I have to say I've learned in this work is you go to these courses and you see how the ideal could be. And I get so excited. And then I realize reality is never ideal. <laughs> and, and taking a step forward is a step forward. Um, you know, it's like you got to eat the elephant one bite at a time, right? Right, right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think if I just started with myself, that's my beginning. And then if I took one or two other people to one of these courses with me, that's another step forward. And then if I've done some training on these frameworks and how we think about a shared mental model with all my MedPeds faculty, then I'm taking a bigger step. You know, when I started this work in 2014, 15, and now I'm working with all of our um, continuity clinic preceptors in medicine, which is a much bigger group. So, you know, you start small when you're trying to make change, do kind of a test of change. Um, and then slowly grow it. So it, it's not as if you can roll this out in a week and have, you know, 600 faculty trained in a particular model in a week. So I would just ask people to be realistic and gentle with themselves and, and figure out what an accomplishable um, task would be as you try to roll some new educational skill forward. Yeah, what, one of my favorite mantras is progress, not perfection. Yeah, so for sure. So any, any step forward is in the right direction, but I, I am with you. I, when I attended the six day, yeah, it was um, drinking from the fire hose, but I came back so pumped up, ready to institute this across all of our statewide campus system members, which is 32 hospitals, 155 some odd programs and, um, you know, came back to reality quite quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but we're, we're making progress with every, 
session that we run of, of our, our hub program, which now I'm going to have to give a plug for it. Uh, the next hub program, we are doing it as a longitudinal uh, six-week program that starts October of 2021. So please see the MSU Com statewide campus system website and you'll be able to register. Um, and then we'll have our three-day, hopefully in-person, uh, three-day consecutive uh, April of 2022. So that's it from us. <laughs> awesome. But there are 17 hubs worldwide, um, so always check out one in, uh, you know, LA or where our international ones, um, the UK. Well, and there are there are still the six day course at ACGME, and for anyone who's interested, they are always listed on the ACGME website. And oftentimes the hub courses that are going in different locations are also um, located on the ACGME website. I would say that um, just like everything else in the past 18 months, uh, what people have planned is not actually what's happened in the past 18 months. We have had several of the hub courses uh, provide uh, virtual courses um, and some have just put them off till we can be in person. Um, so there were some things that were planned that actually didn't happen, but please stay tuned to the ACGME website, both for the um, online and in-person in Chicago and the online and in-person hub courses um, across the country. Yes, agreed. Thank you so much. Um, have a great day. And Thanks, Deb. We'll see you soon. Great to chat with you as always, as and always. Uh, um, talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Good.